looking in 1 John chapter number 2 here, we've made our way through the first chapter and into the second chapter of the, uh, the epistle to John here. And as we do, we come to a verse that is, in all honesty, rather blunt. Uh, I love the way the Word of God just sort of puts it out there. And, you know, Jesus said, uh, be holy for I am holy. You know, God said, be holy for I am holy. Jesus said, be, your, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Jesus said time and time again um, to, um, uh, to go and sin no more. Uh, he, he let us know over and over the areas that we were weak in. Uh, the Word of God has the ability, it, it's referred to as a two-edged sword, it's a sharp sword that cuts both directions, uh, and, and it can inflict pain, or it can be such a sharp and fine uh, instrument that it can do surgery. And this is the beautiful thing about the Word of God. If we allow it, it can cut out the parts of us that don't need to be there. It's not only an offensive weapon, it can be a defensive weapon as well. And so as we look into some of these things, uh, uh, many times we come to a verse such as uh, what we're going to be focusing in on today, and our first response is, well, I'm never going to be perfect. God understands that. Well, of course He understands that, but He still has an expectation that has been given to us. So stand with me, if you would, as we read 1 John chapter number 2. And we're going to read the first six verses. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Now, if that wasn't blunt enough, here's another blunt statement, and this is our focus for this morning. Verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Now let's think about that for a moment, and we'll reread it for emphasis' sake. This is the message from God. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he, talking about Jesus, walked. Father, bless now the reading of your word to our hearts and our lives to its application. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, this claim, if you claim, or this, this statement here, if you claim to abide in Jesus, then you should have the same kind of walk that Jesus himself had. This is a difficult one, really, if, if we're honest with ourselves. This is a tough one. This is like a glass of cold water dumped on you in the midst of a hot shower. I mean, it just really, it catches you off guard, just kind of stops you for a moment. If it doesn't have that effect on you, then you haven't read it right. 
Because understand what we typically do when we come to a statement such as this. And I've had people tell me, I've even said it myself, uh, I'm not perfect, I'll never be perfect, God understands that, God looks at the heart, so forth and so on. Yes, that is true, God does understand that we will never be perfect. However, uh, in his understanding of our never being able to be perfect was the reason that he sent his son at the, at the very beginning uh, to die for us because he knew we couldn't do it. But that doesn't change the fact that we are still expected to maintain some sort of level of, uh, of, uh, of righteousness. Now, this is not a maintaining of righteousness in order to gain his affection, in order to be saved, in order to stay saved. But God says be perfect and he would not give a command that he doesn't want us to at least strive toward. He says, this is the mark. This is where you need to be. You're falling short of that. My son paid the price because of your falling short. But you are still expected to pursue holiness. We talked about this last week as we looked at, uh, at the uh, idea that is found there in uh, four or five and, uh, verses 4 and 5, 3, 4 and 5. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Beloved, for me to just simply say, well, I'm never going to be perfect. Oh, well, case or sirrah, whatever will be, will be, is not the heart of someone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. For me to see my problems and to have a desire to address them is because I have the Holy Spirit in me crying out, Abba, Father, I want you to be more like my dear son. And so this idea here, this, you know, no one is saying that you are supposed to be sinlessly perfect in order to be saved. The statement is that, is that when a person is genuinely born again, there will be a desire to strive uh, against sin, to strive for a closer walk with God, to strive to be more like his son. And when I am confronted with the parts of me that are not Christ-like, I must have this desire within me to overcome and to move more and more along with my walk with him. Now, remember that John, as we looked at our overview of John, we touched base on the idea of the Gnostic teachings. And so remember, one of the main things that John is combating in his book of 1 John here, in his letter, is that of the Gnostic understandings. And some of those Gnostic teachings were sinless perfection. That when a person is born again by the Spirit of God, they no longer sin. They no longer struggle with sin. They no longer have this fight. And if you have this fight or if you sin, you are not saved. And John is trying to get it out there and say, whoa, 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 that's not the case. That's why he put what he talked about at the end of, of chapter number one. Uh, he talked about if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There's that person that says, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm doing, able to do whatever I want. Because that's the other side of the pendulum. Because so many people were saying, no, 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 you don't have to be perfect to be saved. We're saved and God excuses our imperfection. That's not the case. God does not excuse sin. He is still just. So, so the idea that the Gnostics brought in about sinless perfection, then there was this pendulum swing where people were completely over on the opposite side of things saying, no, you're not sinlessly perfect, and that's okay. No, sin is still not okay. But I think so often we get in our minds this idea of grace, and I am saved by grace, not of works, and then we say, well, 
just throw works right out the window. It is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And praise God for all us good Baptists that put a period at the end of that statement and forget verse 10 that says we are saved unto good works. You see, we are separated to do things right. We don't have to do them in order to attain salvation, but because of salvation, I'm going to strive to do them. This is what John wants us to understand here. And this is why he brought all of this into place in those, uh, those uh, first few verses of chapter number 6. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith he knoweth uh, know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Wow! Talk about a slap in the face, right? But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Then verse 6 brings about something, because I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but apparently in dealing with a lot of this, John, John feels the need to approach this idea of salvation, to approach this idea of still struggling with sin, to approach this idea of, uh, of we are to walk with him, we are to obey his commandments. And, but then he brings in verse number 6, which brings about a question for me. Verse number 6, he says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Which brings this question, it begs this question, what does it mean to walk in the same way Jesus walked? And think about that for just a minute. He says, if we claim to abide in him, we should walk the same way Jesus walked. And so that's kind of what comes into my mind is, okay, it, 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 I appreciate that. If you're anything like me, you love being told how you're doing everything wrong and then not be told how to do it right. You enjoy that? Are you doing this wrong? I know. I don't know how to do it right. That's why I keep doing it wrong. And so what? You just need to do it right. <clears throat> Show me how to do it right. My grandpa was a finished carpenter, and he did... He would do the crown moldings and everything. And I mean, my goodness, he was just, he, he was amazing at it. You couldn't see seams. And he did it the old way. He would use the little coping saws and go, and he, man, he did it right. He did a great job. But I would, uh, I would cut through one board. I remember there was one time I was trying to do just a real simple uh, piece of crown molding. And I brought this board in and I, I had, I put my 45 degree on there and I cut it down and I went back over to the wall and That doesn't work, right? So I come back to the saw, and I change the other 45, right? Peg it to the other side, and I cut down. It still doesn't look right. So I go back, and I thought, well, maybe I just, maybe I had it upside down. So I put it. By the time I was finished, I needed like an eight-foot board, and it was like four and a half feet. And I'm just, at this stage of the game, it's I am not giving up on this board. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to find out how to do it right, and nobody's going to tell me I didn't get it. And so, I mean, I'm just cutting and cutting. My grandpa just standing off to the side, just watching. And finally, he says, do you need some help? Duh. Yes, I need help. He said, well, why didn't you ask? I don't need that from you right now. Just show me what I'm doing wrong. And he came over and shoom, boom, now cut it. What do you know? 
worked like a charm when somebody showed me how to do it right. I don't know about you, but there are many times where I will read through something and I'll see how I'm doing something wrong. I see what I'm supposed to do, but nobody breaks it down into practicality for me. Nobody lets me know, you want to you walk like Christ? Here's how. So I'm going to do the best job that I can today of taking what we learned last week, and now let's, let's, let's springboard off of that, and we'll look into what we're talking about here to walk like Christ. It's one thing to say we ought to walk like Him. It's another thing to explain what that looks like. So let's look at a few things this morning. Number one, we need to learn how to walk with reliance on the Father. Relying completely on the Father. This is the way Jesus walked. Look with me, if you would, uh, uh, back to 1 John, uh, over to 1 John chapter 4. Look what it says here in 1 John chapter 4. It says, Hereby, we know, uh, hereby know ye the Spirit of God... Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth uh, not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, we're going to dig into this a little bit more when we get over into chapter 4. But I wanted to use this as a way for us to jump over and understand that Jesus came in the flesh. Anybody that says otherwise is lying and is, is straight from the pits of hell. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, left heaven, stepped out of His glory, and robed Himself in flesh. 100% God, 100% man. You do the math, I can't figure it out. But the day that I'm able to figure it out, God ceases to be God. He's able to be 100% man and 100% God. Only He can. Now, the amazing thing is that we forget so often that Jesus was man. We forget about this. If you look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, keep your hand to, or take a, uh, take a tithing envelope or something and you know, stuff it in 1 John, and we'll go over to 2 Corinthians here. And then when we get back to 1 John, take the tithing envelope out, fill it up, and put something in it. Come on, that was funny. Now, look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Look at verse 7. Paul saying, At least I should be exalted above measure, though the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, notice this, most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Too often we forget just how weak we are. And I love the way Paul addressed it here in 2 Corinthians. He said, I, I don't get upset about my infirmities. I don't get upset about my weaknesses. I glory in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, I see truly how strong he is. Understand something about Jesus. Jesus' walk was this way. He stepped out into the wilderness knowing he was going to be tempted, knowing he was starting his ministry 
spent 40 days praying and fasting, trying to get as much strength from the Father as he possibly could. If Jesus understands being fully God himself, but being robed in flesh, if he understands the importance of spending time alone with God, we too should see the importance. We should see it. His reliance on the Father, he steps out, and he even here he is, 40 days without food and water. He's, he's fasting, he's getting closer to God. He's, he's spending that time with the Father, and then Satan shows up. And what's Jesus' response? Scripture. Scripture. You can't respond with Scripture without spending time in Scripture. You ever get in a conversation with a sports nut? It just, I'll be honest with you. I, I like watching sports as much as the next guy, but... You know, the, the guys that they know every statistic of every player, and they can tell you who batted what average. They know who ran how many yards. They know all these different things. And you're like, you know, when I was playing sports, uh, I was playing sports. I wasn't just watching it, learning all the statistics. In the locker room, you had two kinds of people. The guy that, that knew how to play and the guy that knew how other people played. But, but you get into the, and they, they spout off, and you're just going, how in the world do you know that? Well, they spend hours. They read ESPN. They watch ESPN. They listen to ESPN. They live ESPN. They breathe ESPN. They get up in the morning. What are they doing? They're checking the scores. Who played what game? Who? They're studying. That's how they know. You know how you can respond to temptations? With the Word of God. But you know what it takes to spend that time with the Word? Admitting you need to. The reason more people don't spend time in the Word of God and don't spend time on their knees before God on a regular basis is because they think they're doing okay. And, and here's, here's the sad thing. You want to know the saddest part? You want to know why kids aren't growing up spending more time in the Word of God? Why they're not growing up spending more time on their knees? You want them to have a good prayer life. You, you want them to have a good study life. You know why they don't have a good study life? Because so many kids are growing up year after year of their life never seeing their parents have a good study life. They hear, read the Bible and pray. But they see people go all day, every day, without stopping to arrest themselves and just spend time on their knees. I'll be honest with you, putting this message together was a difficult one for me. I'm reading through E.M. Bounds' Preacher and Prayer. The Preacher and Prayer, I believe, is the exact title. And he makes the statement, no amount of study will take the place of time on your knees in preparation for a sermon. And I started to think to myself, how many hours do I spend in study and putting a sermon together? And then how many hours do I spend on my knees about that sermon? It's because we don't rely on Him the way we should. 
sadly, our reliance is on, is on ourself, not just in something we do uh, with our spiritual battles, but we also do this with our life in general. Uh, if you were to, to go back to, the, uh, to Luke chapter 6, right before he, uh, Jesus chose his disciples, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it lets you know that he spent the entire night before that in prayer and fasting. Before he chose his disciples, before he made his big decisions, I mean, think about that. Jesus knew who he was picking. That guy? He's an idiot. He's a loose cannon. He'll never make a good preacher. And yet here I am. I mean, come on. If Jesus, being God himself, knows the importance of prayer. It's time for us to wake up to that reality. Second, not only walking in reliance on the Father, relying on Him, but we need to walk in fellowship with God. Do we truly believe, think about this for a moment, do we truly believe that we have the ability to enjoy a relationship with God today? Jesus talked about this in John 14. He, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I come again I, to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is something that we can do today. We can have that relationship with him today. We don't have to wait until heaven to have that one-on-one forever relationship, that close walk with him. We can have it right now. Jesus understood this. We don't. We don't get it. it Think about this for a minute. Look at John chapter 11, the gospel of John chapter 11. One of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture. Okay, so you know the story. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. He delays. He shows up. Um, People are upset. They're weeping over um, uh, over Jesus not being there and Lazarus uh, had died. Um, Jesus is kind of, to be honest with you, it sounds to me like he's getting a little frustrated. In verse 38 of chapter 11, Jesus therefore again groaning. Oh, you have little faith. I wonder how many times he just shook his head. But then he gets to something interesting in verse 41 when he finally shows up to the place. It says in verse 41, they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. This is an interesting thing, and if you're not careful, you'll just read right past what Jesus says here. It's like, okay, let's get to the good part where he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? But he says something interesting in his prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And then there's this parenthetical statement. (laughs) I know you always hear me, but because of these schmucks, I have to say it out loud so that they know that you heard me. When's the last time you prayed knowing God heard. We pray a lot and we, go, we walk away going, well, if it be your will, I wonder if he's listening. If, if, you, if you don't mind, um, 
I mean, think about the audacity of something. It is God's will, not, it is not God's will that any should perish. And then we, we go and we pray and we say, Lord, my brother really needs to come to know you as Savior. And then we walk away wondering if God hears me. Really? If, and it, if it be your will, would you save this individual? What are we thinking? Of course the Lord desires their salvation. He desires their salvation more than you ever will. So much more that he was willing to send his son to bleed every drop of blood and to breathe every last breath on their behalf. Yes, he wants them to. So why don't we get on our knees, pray, and get up saying, Thank you, God, for hearing me. I know you heard me. You see, it's that fellowship, it's that relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And, and, and remember, yes, 100% God, but 100% man. You can have this kind of relationship. I can have this kind of fellowship with the Father. It's not that it's not available. It's that I don't take advantage of it. Being careful not to forget about Jesus' humility in John chapter 7 you know, he's, he, he makes the statement, he says, my teaching does not come from me. I teach and I say whatever, uh, whatever the Father tells me to say. In John chapter 8, he says, I don't rely on my own teaching, nor do I tell people my way of thinking. This is the Andy Lake paraphrased edition. If you're going to the Bible, going, that's not in here. Just read the Bible, okay? He says, I don't rely on my ideas. I tell people God's ideas, the Father's ideas. He relied solely on his father. He had a continual walk with his father. And third, he was obedient to his father. We need to be obedient to the father. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 lets us know that he became obedient unto death. He's God. Now, a lot of people will take this teaching of Jesus being obedient causes a lot of people to slide into error if they're not careful. The idea that God has to obey God. Huh. huh. You know, the best way that I can see this, uh, the, many, many see the hierarchy in marriage uh, that, that the Bible puts out as a, as a way to keep women under control. You know, that's, but that's not what's there. They're missing the beauty of, of marriage in the biblical sense. The husband and the wife become one. This is not a singularity. This is a unity. They are no longer two different people walking two different paths. This is why you've got to be cautious in marriage. If you have a person walk in this direction and a person walk in that direction, the two will never be together. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And I was, talking to, uh, I was talking to a young couple uh, one time about marriage. And uh, the young man was, uh, you know, he says, I, everything I try to do to, to get closer to her doesn't work. And then she wants to do things to get closer to me. And, and I said, well, maybe it's your all's directions. And if you think about it, you got person A here and person B here. And they want to get closer together. But this person wants to get closer to the Lord. And God is up here, and they start moving toward God, but then they want to move toward the person. But then they want to move toward God, and then they move toward the person. 
They end up looking, you know, more of an S than a straight line, right? And then this person over here is wanting to get closer to them, not wanting to get closer to God. Well, they're moving this direction. They're moving that. They're never going to come together. But if you have a person who wants to get close to God and another person who wants to get close to God and they start moving at the same time toward God, they naturally come together. See, this is marriage. Two people coming together for one path as opposed to two separate paths. Now, how does that really equate with the Godhead? Well, we, we can see some of these things. There are times I have to give up my will. It goes further than just the, uh, you know, the benefit of one another, both being uh, able to give up their will for the benefit of one another. There are times that I have to give up my will, not for Sarah, but to bring glory to God. And there are times she has to give up her will, not for Andy, but to bring glory to God. The Father and the Son, they knew something about what it was to be united. And Jesus said, it's going to be the better part. It's going to bring glory. I'm going to do it. See, Jesus humbled himself. Being God... Being the offended one, he took the punishment for you. Um, let me try to give a, a picture of that. Many times we think of salvation, and people will give the example. If you were standing before, uh, if a, let's, let's say a murderer was standing before a judge, and the judge says you're guilty, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a forgiving judge. And so I'm going to let you go free. And people kind of get that idea in their mind. They're like, oh, wow. Well, I, man, if I had a judge like that, I'd be thankful. What if this murderer had murdered your family? Would you want to see them go free? <laughs> what kind of... You, they, they brutally murdered your wife, your kids, your parents, and the judge is forgiving. What kind of judge is going to let... Am I the only one that's bothered by that? You see, here's the difference, though. It was God who was offended. The sin was against God. And God was the judge. And God looked at this sinning offender, and he said, guilty, and your sentence is death. But then he rolled up his sleeves and took your place. You see, this is where we need to understand the difference between God's offering of grace and mercy. The sin was against him. David understood this. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil. If you, your family, was the one that was murdered and you were the judge, and you stood and convicted. You looked at the evidence and pronounced him guilty. And then you took the punishment. That's what God did for you. It's different. No matter what you think. And no matter your reasoning. No matter your situation. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to obey God in what he's calling you to do? 
Because too often we ask things like, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me if I do this? Beloved, let me ask you this. What was in it for Jesus when he took your place on the cross? You know, well, I'll obey, I'll I'll forgive, or I'll show mercy, or I'll be gracious, or I'll give, but I want to know what's in it for me. You know, when I look in the mirror, I realize what was in it for Jesus. He scraped the bottom of the barrel. You know the stuff that you, you're walking in the yard and you step in something, and then you come home and you have to scrape the stuff off your shoes, you know? And then you have to take your shoe off, and then you have to pick the parts out of the tread. The part under that is me. What was in it for him when he died? Not a lot. What's in it for you by obeying him? You know what's amazing? You get the privilege of bringing glory and honor to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are given the privilege of having a relationship with the divine. You're given a privilege and a promise of eternal life and a brighter tomorrow. You're given a promise of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, empowering you, and strengthening you. What more do you want? What could be better than that? Last, we walk in love. The love of the Father. Take yourself back to the last days of Jesus before his death on the cross. Take yourself mentally back there for a moment. Put yourself in the room with the disciples as Jesus wraps a towel around himself, starts to make his way around and wash the feet of the disciples. Put yourself in the room as he kneels in front of Judas, picks up that dirty foot and washes the feet of the one who was to betray him. Can you love like that? I'll be honest with you, I have a difficulty loving like that. But that's when Jesus said, by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Many times we're looking for excuses to not have to show love. We're looking for excuses. We even search the scriptures to find, uh, find justification for our hatred and bitterness. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He wasn't surprised. He washed the feet of the one he knew was going to betray him. I understand love is a choice. Love is an action word. It's a, it's a verb. It's something that we do, not something that we feel, not something that we necessarily just possess it's something that we do and i think if we ask ourselves why we will not love we will quickly find that it is because of some sort of self-motivated comfort or want 
In other words, we want to be served. But Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. What's in it for me, right? I'll love as long as. I'll love if I can or if I get. We examine our decision to see if there's any benefit or value to us personally. Forgetting what was in it for Jesus. This, the writer of Hebrews got it when he said in, Rome, or in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Do you know what his joy is? You. The joy that was set before him. Your salvation. Your justification. Your sanctification. Your glorification. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, looking again at 1 John chapter 2, we'll wrap it up right here. You can wake your neighbor up. Look what he says in verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So understanding how we can walk the way Jesus did. And, and uh, beloved, we could, spend, we could spend weeks just on this topic and not scratch the surface. But if we think about that for just a moment, it, it kind of puts a spotlight on the first part of that verse. He that saith, he abideth in him. To abide in Jesus is to stay in his truth, in his word. John said it this way, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. In other words, the word of God. If I am to abide, just let's make it as, I'm a simple guy, I like things simple. And so, you know, if someone says, what is it to abide in Jesus? As simply as I can put it is to stay in his word. Monday morning comes around, guess where I am? Tuesday morning comes around, guess where I am? Thursday afternoon, and I'm having a difficult day at work, and somebody wants to show themselves to me, somebody wants to act like an idiot, what do I do? I respond based on, on abiding in the word of God. So for someone to say, I abide in him then they ought to walk the way he walked. Now, there, there are two basic responses that you can get. One is to dig your heels in and say, well, that's just his opinion. I'm fine and I'm determined to keep living the same way. Or you can see an area that you need to exercise more faith in and apply this to your life. That's really it. Those are your options. Not because you're obeying me. I'm just showing you the Word of God. And I'm not asking people to sign up to be perfect for the rest of their life. I'm not asking that. 
But I am going to ask something specific. There's something that has gone through your mind during this message. I didn't put that there. The Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart about something. Maybe it's spending more time in prayer. Maybe it's spending more time in the Word. Maybe it's spending more time being forgiving. Maybe it's spending time with someone. Maybe it's, maybe it's cutting off a relationship with someone. I don't know. It could be something way left field. That one thing. I'm not asking you to have a perfect life from this point on. I'm asking you, will you take that one thing and will you address it today? Are you relying on your own strength to get yourself through or are you realizing I lack and I need Him? Are you... Are you walking in fellowship and in step with Him? Are you obeying His Word when God's Word confronts you and shows you something that you need to change? Are you obeying it or excusing it away? Are you loving the way He loved? If there's something that you need to address, today is the day to do it. Father, we come before you, Lord, the only one to whom we can turn in days of difficulty and times of stress and trouble. And Father, just to be very blunt and very honest, this is one of those difficult things. There's a difficulty sometimes in obedience. We don't want to change. We don't like the work that's involved. But Father, you would only call us and woo us to do what is going to make us more like you. And so Father, I'm going to ask as one once prayed that what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? Father, I know in me and in my personal flesh, I don't have the capacity to love some people. I don't have the ability to forgive. I don't have the discipline to be on my knees regularly. Or to be in your word as much as I should. But your Holy Spirit does. And so I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would take control of our lives. And that we would rely on his strength, not our own. And that we would learn to rejoice and glory in our infirmities. Knowing that in our weakness, you are so strong. Father, help us to walk lives revealing you in them. To be more like your son. To be less like ourselves. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.